0: Hello everyone, I'm Keisha taylor wesselink your host for A Correction today and I am really delighted to be able to speak with Amelia wiener about all things Metaverse. She is an artist of Iroquois origin who innovates with artificial intelligence in ways that make a positive impact on our communities and the environment. She is a Banks Family Prominence Endowed Chair and Associate Professor of Artificial Intelligence and the Arts at the Digital Worlds Institute at the University of Florida. She is also the inventor of Honor Native Sky and founded the award winning podcast Wampum Codes, an ethical framework for software development based on indigenous values of co creation. She was awarded a MacArthur Sundance Institute Fellowship for her collaborative 360 video immersive installation and has been awarded other prestigious prizes for her VR, AR projects. Thank you very much, Amelia, for speaking to me today. I'm really excited to talk to you about the work that you've been doing. To kick off, I'd like to ask, what do you mean when you talk about the metaverse?
1: Oh, great question. Um, you know, it's, it's people ask me this question a lot in regards to, uh, you know, Facebook changing their name to meta. Uh, what I would like to say is colonizing the the metaverse and using that terminology as if, you know, they invented it or if they since since we all know they didn't invent it. Uh, it does feel like a little bit of colonization going on because um, those of us who've been working in sort of those hybrid no spaces of the online, the digital, the physical, um, the physical computational, the AI, um, and machine learning aspects of, of art and performance and time based expression um, have been calling it the metaverse. Of course, you know, it was it's coined by Neil Stevenson, that term um, in Snow Crash, but you, you know, what he was describing very much existed in a prototypical phase, you know, when he came out with that book and was inspired by a lot of these, you know, different, uh, whether you call them cypherpunks or cyberpunks or, you know, just, uh, net artists and, and all of us kind of moving as a collective online and, and creating new things with new possibilities. Um, and now kind of <laughs> fast forward 20, you know, years later, um, we have that announcement and suddenly that Word is very mainstream, but it actually means something different. So I would say that when when I first started making art, uh, the metaverse really was that idea that someday we could bring our physical, um, it, it, like body expression systems more closely in line with the way that we wanted to communicate digitally and they could be less of a friction there whether it's VR or whether it's AR or XR we were really thinking of ways that we could move beyond why are we on a typewriter that has a TV on it right like why is that the way we interact it's with data right? <laughs> right you know so we you know and a lot of us are doing weird things with power gloves and down you know doing all of the uh, you know different kind of cool hacks that were going around to make our own DIY VR or, or different interfaces are just saying, like, why can't I interact with computational concepts mm-hmm. um, any other way than this ty- typewriter TV screen, right? Oh, I love um, how you explain yeah. that. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, I also wanted to ask, what do you think is the significance um, of the impact the tech industry is having as as they operate, as people in that industry operate as an art patron especially when many artists do not have digital or technical skills to inform their work in this metaverse
1: look the funding for the arts or or financial support for the arts is you know varies a lot country to country and i you know i'm i'm obviously speaking from as you know a Native American and a Jewish American, um, you know, like my perspective has really been that in the U.S. there is not a lot of funding for <laughs> the arts. There's like some small grants here and there. It's usually going to be funneled through 10 different institutions before it reaches you. And it's going to be a small amount for a huge project. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of like state of the world right right now. And then you have, of course, like the, the art market, which is a different thing. And you have patrons that, that move in those spaces. Um, but most artists in the U S, um, have maybe a hybrid of a commercial plus art practice, or, um, a lot of them are now like me who have like tech jobs and art practices. Right. So, um, so in some ways the tech companies are subsidizing artists by just having us have a job and then we have these side projects that are our art. Right. So that's like a really real thing that is happening too. I am fascinated by the financial systems that have been involved in the art world and art making, you know, through different Western or non-Western traditions, and then looking at it today. And I personally, some of my favorite artists that inspired me to make art made money and made art about money, and then talked quite a bit about demystifying their connection within the art market or within the art system or within patrons of the art. So thinking about art in in economies and what the economy has been of art, I think is really important to understanding um, meaning behind art and meaning of what art is in our culture. And it's been, um, you know, it has had a lot of problems, right, (laughs) through, through a lot of Western expression, whether it's this idea of, you know, you used to have artists that primarily worked for a specific Patron, or a king, or a church, and it was kind of heavily censored in the sense of like maybe it was censored because of that person's taste. Maybe it was censored in the sense that the church wanted certain messages to be displayed and and hidden other other messages, or wanted certain type of agenda to be communicated to the masses and didn't want something else, right? And so that that was in some ways the way that financial um, sort of control of the market um, in. It was directly connected to the type of artwork that was allowed to be created. But then you look at systems that are non-Western and look at maybe, you know, I'm, I'm Seneca Cayuga Nation of Oklahoma Deer Clan, and the kind of history of our art making was a lot more integrated into the political systems of our culture. So telling stories, having our beadwork, doing our arts and crafts, our dance, our singing, all of that um, was about carrying forth the values of our culture to the next generation, and so some of it was educational, some of it celebratory, some of it is spiritual. But it wouldn't be uncommon for everyone to participate in some way in art making, and then you'd have certain people who are specialists who like do that, you know, a lot. Maybe they travel quite a bit and tell stories, or they have, you know, are a lot older and have just have had more experience telling more stories and gathering more stories, and so they're. Recognizes the storyteller of that specific village, or maybe of your longhouse, or of your family. So, um, art sort of functioned in a different way, but of course, our economy functioned in a different way. We had a decentralized uh, economy that was based on a Confederate democracy. And that Type of um, economic model made possible this idea that anyone could participate in art making, and that people could specialize it and still have the support of the entire community because of this decentralized economy, mm-hmm. um, and and that's that's really a new thing we're starting to see right now with the possibilities of art DAOs or of NFTs and looking at new economic models of support for artists. And so while on the one hand, if we were to say, let's cede all control to tech companies and they can choose which artists that they support, that, that is a problem. That's a problem, not just for what you you mentioned, Kesha, of, around you know, not all artists are engaging in technology or using technology or want to, right? And they shouldn't have to, right? Mm. Um, that's kind of one problem. Another problem that it, that can exist is it's just a problem if you centrally give that power of expression in a culture to any one group whether it's just the zero zero one percent who are rich or it's just the board of museums or galleries or it's just you know the CEOs of tech companies right or if it's just people who work at tech companies and have the most disposable income right like all those things um will change significantly the type of art that's that's supported and allowed to um to exist in the world and yet art, as it at its, you know I, don't know, I don't want to say like words like purist or most essential because all that's kind of nonsense. But, you know, art does have a transformative property for imagining the future, for Im- embedding values for future generations. It has so many functions that it can't, it can't really belong to such a, f- a small group of people. It just really can't.
0: It's going to be interesting. <laughs> that's for certain. Game technologies. Uh, seem like they're going to be the fundamental infrastructure for the metaverse. So, does this mean that, that we are going to be gamers now?
1: <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean,
0: are we already gamers? Maybe we're already <laughs> gamers.
1: We don't even know it. Um, yeah, no. I mean, I I, I hope so. I mean, I don't know. I you know, I'm, I'm like sometimes a gamer and sometimes not a gamer. I I think I'm really fascinated by. The way in which stories are told in gaming universes, I think some of the most vibrant tales that will come out of like Generation Z or Gen Z or Zoomers or whatever you want to call them, like my my son is twenty, so like his generation, you know, the stories that the tales, the sagas that they're telling in Minecraft or Roblox or Eve Online that they've been telling for the last ten years, might be the canon that they pull from for the rest of their lives, right? Like that this could be the story worlds that they express um, some of their concerns, some of their aspirations, some of their hopes and dreams. Um, And I think it's really beautiful how they co-create in such large scale. And I, I don't know if anyone else's kids are kind of the same way, but like my son, he's not very interested in Hollywood produced films or television um, he's kind of got his own stories going on with his own friend group and he is much more engaged in story worlds that he's co-creating than the ones that other people made and then are selling back to him.
0: Hmm, that's really interesting. As you say, there's a Native American proverb that goes, those who tell the stories rule the world. So I wonder how this dichotomy between one group uh, wanting to to push one agenda or this vision of a story onto everyone else would clash with, People who are, you know, using these technologies in ways uh, with other people to tell their own stories, how those two things are going to clash.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, it's it's like since I was coming up in the world, we were ringing this loud bell of like, this is the end of the broadcast. We kept saying that as like 90s, you know, cyberpunks. And it it didn't really happen as quickly until now. Now it's like you can say, oh, hey, the broadcast is dead. And people are like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not paying attention to you because I'm, I'm on Twitter and on Discord and I'm in like my own DAO and I'm like, watching a show my friend is live streaming on Twitch. You know what I mean? Like, so they're they're not even like, <laughs> they're not even listening to the mainstream media saying that it's becoming decentralized because it already has become that way. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think it is um, fascinating to see that decentralization happen. Of course, I'm a huge fan of um, the media scholar, Gene Youngblood, who recently passed away. And he talked a lot about the end of the broadcast and what was going to happen next. And this is, you know, I don't know. I don't know when this, this, this book has been you know re-released many times, but it definitely was something I was reading in the nineties and being very inspired by. So that we've, we've heard talk that this is going to happen. And yet um, he, here it is. And, you know, there's, it brings new problems with it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think people talk a lot about the crisis of, um, of fake news, not having a centralized voice anymore, but um, the biggest problem we have with that singular broadcast was it it didn't really matter if it was fake. There was only one. So it was just that was true because it was the only one, right? And that is an enormous problem in any culture, in any society. Like not having a healthy back channel, not having um, diverse opinions represented, not having um, the ability to hold truth to power. And and I'm sorry, but you can't do that if there's if you have a monolithic media. You can't really hold truth to power because you know you you become so large, you're so embedded in the power structures that are supporting you. You would never really critique them, or never in a serious way, or never in a way that could actually cause Real change because you'd be threatening your own um, power as well.
0: How will the metaverse and or these new technologies challenge ideas around how art can be a- accessed and experienced?
1: That's a great That's question.
0: A on it a little bit earlier, but maybe there's something else you want to expand on.
1: Sure, thank you so much for that question. I mean, um, y- you know, for those who have never. Made a co-created a story in a story world online, right? Which isn't everybody, but it is a lot of people. If you kind of term that, like if you've participated in an MMO RPG, or if you've been a part of live streams or co-watching events where you're kind of talking with someone, or if you're part of very vibrant online groups where um, where the in- entertainment or storytelling is really comes from your community and is is held and supported within your your community. It doesn't necessarily need to be an official mutual aid network to have. A mutual aid network, right? To have a group of people that are just caring for each other and creating and capturing each other's stories and and sharing them. Um, a lot of people may have experienced that the first time in a Facebook group or something like that. But um, a lot of um, what you're seeing with uh, the maybe you know my son's generation who um, who've grown up co-creating and making their own Minecraft servers and and modding games and systems and hacking them so that they're able to tell their own unique stories to their own unique audiences for, for many years is we see that the, the notion of what art can be and where it can live can be something that is more immersive or that maybe meets you where you are rather than you pushing into a broadcast. Mm-hmm. Um, it can become part of your your daily life. And in that way, it has a very, it's it a lot more, I think, like indigenous storytelling because the length of time that is committed to it Is different. It's something that can be a daily conversation, a daily um, sort of practice in your life, and also something that you're deeply a part of, that you see yourself in, rather than a message from um, an elite group of people as to what. You know, they think of as as art or as um, as entertainment or as stories uh, that we see. And you know, we we see kind of a problem with that with the singular broadcast in the past is it really told um, stories from a specific cultural perspective and and ignored um, everything else, right? (laughs) So um, I I love to kind of see the way that um, when people co-create the stories um, that they that they also consume um, that we see a, a. big diversity of topics and of what things are considered important to different communities.
0: Well, I love uh, how you explained that uh, this needs to all refer to what you talk about uh, in your article on metaverse native art. So it seems like that has a lot to contribute to be thinking how this develops. And I really love that.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I've always, felt, um, I feel the most honored in communities that allow space for me, right? That if I am if I am invited to participate or to engage, I'm invited in a way that imagines that I'm a creative person, that I'm a thinking person, that I have uh, stories to tell, or maybe talents that I can also um, contribute to the group. And I think um, a lot of times that's why gaming worlds are so immersive and in Inviting these great long-term stories that that uh, the younger generations are telling in those spaces because they are creative platforms where you're allowed to show up and bring your brain, your most creative, you know, part of yourself and and imagine and co-create this with people. And, um, you know, I think a lot of times we've hit the limit of what you can do when it comes to you know film or television or static media when it comes to engaging your mind. Like we can. Kind of do beautiful things with writing and film and um, sort of static storytelling where we can get you to think and and use your imagination and visualize things in that way. Um, but this this metaverse is actually means that it's it's more than that. It's it's what nothing is static anymore. You can have a static question and then someone can respond to that and that response becomes part of the chain.
0: Yeah, oh, this sounds wonderful. And how do you think? gaming, and decentralized autonomous organizations intersect for new models in the metaverse?
1: I think it is possible where you can suddenly have... um large groups of people being highly engaged in the governance of the systems. And I think, you know, I love using Minecraft as an example because Minecraft, you can have your own economies, you can have your own sort of goals or strategies or community guidelines, and you can mod things to the point where it's something very unique and fun for that community. Um, DAOs allow you to do that outside of the game space, right? (laughs) Which is really cool. It's kind of like Minecraft for the world, right? Like what if, yes, you know, you grew up taking your ideas of governance and economies and storytelling and interaction and community, and you prototype them in Minecraft. Now, what do they do now that they're they're in college and they're graduating, what are they going to do now? Now they're inventing and championing DAOs. And I'm not surprised because they're taking that same way of thinking in a decentralized story space and saying, well, wait a minute, if I could do this in Minecraft and I could talk to all my friends and we could organize like, on Tuesday, you do this. And on Wednesday, you do that. And we're building this and that. We need this people to do this. They all were project managers. Like my son, (laughs) since 10 to 20 is like project managing. All Okay. Everyone check in. Who did what? Okay. Well, we still need somebody to take care of the trout farm. Is anyone minding the trout? Oh, no one's doing that. Okay, who can do that? They're constantly project managing, right? And they have those incredible skill set. And I'm not surprised that now they're coming out with with DAOs that are saying, hey, we know how to project manage with thousands of people with spare time here and there asynchronously across um, countries and across time zones. We know how to do this. Why can't we do this in, in all spheres of our life? And I I belong to art DAOs and um, economic DAOs and DAOs that are um, focused on arts and ecology and DAOs that are focused on fashion. And you know, it's incredibly fun to see what um, what everyone's doing in that space. It, it's I I, don't, I can't tell you what's going to happen, Kesha, but I can tell you it's going to be exciting.
0: <laughs> well, it sounds that way. It sounds fascinating to me. It makes me want to pick up and start gaming myself. Um, <laughs> what do you think is the relationship between uh, the explosion of non-fungible tokens, NFTs, uh, during the first quarter of 2021 and the developing Metaverse ecosystem?
1: Wow. Well, wow. That, thank you for that question. I mean I you know part of it I think it has to do with um, so many creative people during the pandemic moved into a fully digital space to share information, right And um, you know all of our our film festivals, everything went online and suddenly you had people, who were artists in that space thinking in a different way, just focusing on an ecosystem that had already barely started right before the pandemic. It's like, people were kind of doing NFTs. We were sort of thinking about this stuff. But then I think once you suddenly had people who were like, okay, you know, I'm not doing a big museum show or a big thing at a film festival, um, let's check out some of these things that I've been meaning to check out, right? And I think that's partially why we got the huge influx. And then partially, that you know, the technology has been moving forward and it, it needed um, a little bit of time to make things, um, uh, you know, in, in the beginning, I think it, was, it wasn't necessarily hard to work in the ecosystem, but it was somewhat exclusionary to people who maybe weren't very familiar with it, right? And so it was kind of a hard barrier for entry. And then now we have a lot of, um, you know, marketplaces, and with the advent of and popularity of things like Clubhouse, you just suddenly had a lot more people being able to onboard more people into the space and make it seem fun and exciting. I mean, honestly, if you're an artist, why join any type of new digital? you know, startup or idea or whatever, because as an artist, you're, you want to go where there is a community for you. And you want to go, like, you don't make art to show it in your closet. You make it to make a comment, be part of a conversation to connect with a community. And so if there isn't a community, I I mean, I I have to say I, as a digital artist, since, since the nineties have had thousands of people write to me and say, Hey, I have a new startup. We're going to, we're going to make it so that online is the exact same as going to a museum. And I've heard that same kind of pitch thousands of times. And usually it involves me coding all weekends so I can get my thing into their platform that's incredibly buggy. And then we do it and no one shows up and no one comes and it doesn't hit. And it's just like, you know, a lot of time sunk into these nascent projects. And there's thousands of them, right? Right because the idea of making artwork on the computer and then having it live and have power again in that digital space has been a dream that everyone's had since they've started making art with computers um it's it's existed that desire has existed um and the payoff and the community was what was lacking that that and it doesn't mean payoff in terms of um of money although that did happen right for the a lot of the nft artists have been making um you know significant funds on it and that becomes suddenly allows more people to participate in it. If if art making is something that you can't um, you know, pay your rent with, it becomes a lot harder for a lot more people to participate in it. Mm-hmm. If you have something that can bring financial um, impact into your home, then you're going to be able to spend more time doing it, right? Because you're not like putting it on the side, only do it a couple hours in the weekend. It becomes something that more people can participate in, myself included. So um, So that's like those three things happen, right? Like there's a community that is 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 coalescing around this. There's a space where people can gather um, online and talk about these things. And then there's also the ability to actually, you know, um, m- get compensation for some of this work that you're doing and the work that the artists are doing is talking about this, teaching people about it, having endless amounts of workshops and clubhouse conversations and Twitter, you know conversations and um, writing tutorials and all that, plus making their artwork, plus showing their artwork, plus you know creating the network and infrastructure for showing it. So all that work artists have been doing. Mm-hmm. And if they're doing that and not getting compensated in any way for all of those hundreds of hours they're doing, that's not sustainable, right? So having the ability to have um, an economic marker in there is really important, and I think what we see in the headlines is like the 16 year old made a million dollars, and isn't that like yeah. I guess terrible? I guess we're supposed to think that's terrible. I like personally can't really see that necessarily as being terrible because, um, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with with doing work and having comp- being compensated for it, and I think people just assume that they like. Made a JPEG and then put it online and made a million dollars. Which I mean, great. If that's true, then all of us should be making a lot more (laughs) money. But but they kind of miss the amount of work that these people are doing. And it's much more similar to someone who strikes it as an influencer or something like that. Who's like, oh, I've made a brand. I did all these hundreds of videos and I got out there and then I I kind of started getting sponsorship. It's much more akin to that level of work that I think people. Mm-hmm. maybe don't realize, I don't know, but it's interesting to see the headlines kind of focusing on this, like, isn't this ridiculous that someone could make money doing something that is so stupid? That's kind of what I feel like they're all saying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, well, first Good of life. all, they are working. Um, and second of all, um, that's too bad that art is considered useless to you, you know, like that's sad. And I don't know. I don't know. It's weird. But economics and art are always very um, prickly things in American media, I feel like.
0: Hmm. Yeah, art is so influential. Can you tell us a little bit about how you think of ethical dependencies in software development? Um, I ask like, in relation to things like some concerns that people have had around addiction um, or harassment and discrimination and other social issues.
1: Absolutely absolutely um you know I and, and I have like a, obviously a lot of thoughts in this area I'm very passionate about ethical uh, dependencies and software development I created this a project uh, called Wampum.Codes, which is a podcast which features indigenous people who are doing really creative and cool things um, to make positive change in their community using new technology some of them are technologists some of them are comedians or actors or game designers and and they're using technology in amazing ways to create new communities or build um, indigenous power to help solve different um, economies for indigenous people. So a lot of different awesome things um, that I feature on the podcast. And then there's also an ethical framework for software development that I have developed called Wampum.Codes. And it's based on values of indigenous co-creation. And I do um, these workshops with you know coders that are working at nonprofits, or they're working at at um, tech companies, or they're working you know almost any any company that has coders that works at it. It they they've kind of uh, hired me to do these workshops where we talk about what are the ethics that we have as as a community, as a team, and as a company, and are. Is our code matching up with that? Because I think there's a lot of amazing philosophers and ethicists that write really incredible papers on ethics and AI, ethics and coding and software development. But oftentimes that work is pretty academic, right? And and it's very complex. And it doesn't mean that someone who's an exceptional, you know, backend developer or an exceptional React developer is going to know how to take, you know, seven papers and twelve books and turn that into like, okay, but what do I do for this line of code, right? And so what. I do because I have a background as a coder and also as an academic, is try to translate some of this work into practical, um, like skill set. Like we can ask questions every sprint cycle, we can get together and say, okay this is what I think our values are. And everyone says, oh yeah, we agree. Great. So then we shall know what we do in the next step. And actually, no, we don't. Even if we all agree, um, the way we implement our values is actually kind of difficult, right? It's that practical rubber meets the road way. And that's that's kind of what I do um, or what is my niche is somebody who's you know, a coder and a practitioner, not an ethicist and a philosopher, but I, I am an academic and I I can kind of like look at what a lot of research that's being done, do my own research and talk to, you know, other types of people who are, are building these systems. Right. And and we can begin to start asking some of these questions. So at least baseline, we can start having some of our ethics um, encoded into uh, the software that we are building and putting that um, responsibility, including us in that responsibility. Right. Um, Cause oftentimes a lot of teams will say things like, "Well, you know, I, I'm I'm just the coder. Like, it's up to the CEO to kind of decide what our values are." And the CEO is like, "Yeah, I mean, these are our values." And then they're like, "Great. Wait, what does that have to do with the code? What does that mean?" And that's actually why coders have to be included. In it. I like to use this little like metaphor of imagine if um, you know I'm uh, a structural engineer and I'm building the Brooklyn Bridge. And um, I have a friend who's the head of a fleet of um, transportation vehicles that are large trucks. And, and I, call, I get a call from him and he says, okay, I need to put five trucks across your bridge. What load do they need to carry so that you know, it's going to be allowed across the, the bridge you know, so it doesn't cause any structural damage? And I say, hey, 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 man, Like, look technology is neutral. I don't care what you do with it. It's not up to me to say like what someone can do or how they can use it. I just built the bridge, you know, like it's 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 not my fault if it falls down while you're driving across with your trucks. No one would let anyone who's a structural engineer practice at all if that's the way they thought, right? Like architects actually have to do a lot of stress testing. They have to before they even get the permits, they have to say, "Yeah, we know exactly the load that it can carry." But as tech companies, I mean, we see them talk exactly in that way of like, hey, look, we invented this social media to do uh, good. And it's not our fault that people are using it to do something bad, even though, yes, we are the ones who designed the system. And that's crazy to me. It's crazy to me that there's no type of um, accountability there. And and actually, a lot of coders are, are calling foul and saying, I don't want to work for a company that thinks that way or acts that way. And I want to have values and and ethics deeply in the products that we're building. And so, you know, it's actually people will say, well, this is all fine and good, but how do you get people to want to do this? Actually, that's not been my problem. There are a lot of teams all across the world that are saying, you know, te- coders and projects and software is made up of people. And those people can get together and say, I don't, I don't want to work on a project that doesn't have ethics. Actually, I, I think we can make clear our ethics that we have in these projects. And maybe our our employees will like that better and they'll appreciate our company more. And maybe the CEOs want to have their values um, that are clearly defined. And maybe that becomes part of their ecosystem or even maybe why they might be better than their competitor because they have a more transparent ethical structure that their customers will care about. right? So Mm -hmm. there are a lot of benefits. It's more like how do we actually start doing it and making sure that we realize that coders... Can, should be and have to be part of that conversation. They can't, they can't just be um, having this kind of top-down mentality of like, well, it's, it's like you know technology is neutral. It's not up to me. I just make the thing, right? Like I think if we start realizing that the things we make can, have, um, can create harm in our world, then everyone will want to, um, to participate in an ethical structure.
0: Okay. How do you think there'll be an interplay between the real, real world and the virtual world? I wonder.
1: Oh, that is a good question. I mean, I really like the virtual world. It reminds me of the dream world. My, um, I think one of my all-time lifelong dreams is that I always wanted to be able to bring a friend into a dream I had just so they could see it. Because I, I kind of... I have these dream places that are so incredibly beautiful. And um, I always want to be like, here, show. I want to, you to see this. I want to just put my mind in their mind and they can walk around with me. And I also would love it if we could be there together and um, walk where we can't walk and touch where we can't touch and talk when we're not next to each other. I think it's a really beautiful space. And I think the dream world has been a space of... Um, of imagination and rest. And it's so important to us as humans, like why do we dream? Mm -hmm. And I I feel like as much as we love um, and are connected to the dream world, I hope there could be a possibility there in the virtual space where we can You know, walk without walking, talk without talking, communicate when we're not in the same room together, and um, be a part of some of these beautiful spaces, which hopefully can give us rest and healing and increase our ability to care for one another. You know, and I think if it doesn't do those things, then I'm not super interested in it. (laughs) All right, like I don't want to live my life with a phone strapped to my face. You know what I mean? (laughs)
0: That's the thing. That's the thing. I, I I love what you're just saying there because I'm thinking to myself, you, maybe maybe some dream researchers, some people doing research and dreams need to come into the mix here. Yeah, <laughs> some serious yeah. interdisciplinary research. In your culture, I would say, as you as you as you you spoke a little bit about earlier, nonlinear storytelling is also important. I've read that it's used to teach principles that must last for at least seven generations. What do you think we can learn from this today as we develop the art ecosystem or metaverse?
1: Well, you know, it's that I think when we can think intergenerationally, we understand our role as leaders even before we're leading right like we know we have a responsibility to our ancestors we can be in communication with our descendants and it helps position you you know not not to get super heavy all you young creators out there can still make a lot of crazy things and have an enormous amount of fun but um knowing that you are communicating through generations can give you um a sense of your own value and power and i think that's often something that artists maybe feel is only tied to audience size or dollars rather than being able to carry forth the stories of your community, which are very important. And sometimes that doesn't come with huge audiences and dollars, but it's still um, an important role that you need to play in your community. Um, And, you know, the reason why it's important to share the stories that that you're writing right now or that were passed down to you from your ancestors is you're going to hold some of those values that will help the new generations that are to come to know how to connect to this long um Type of um, of empathetic truth of what it is to be a human. You know, it's hard to be a young human and to know everything. And no one should ever know anything at all time. We're always like we're learning machines and we're doing ma- machines, but we're not we're not knowing everything. Machines, right? <laughs> and so um, this kind of can help connect and ground people so that they um, don't necessarily feel so ground up by existence, but they can feel um, that they are authors of their own experience. Thank you.